April the 20th, 1999, I was to give a speech to set off a theme for an entire evening event at the local high school. Between my normal daily activities and that speech, I went home and I turned on the news to see this terrible story coming out of Littleton, Colorado at Columbine High School. I saw things roll across the bottom of the screen about mass shooting, trench coat mafia, teachers slain defending students. And I couldn't believe what I was looking at. I was witnessing one of the most severe mass shootings of the modern era. That is to say there were some before, but this one, this one seemed different. I didn't know how to make sense of it. I still don't. That evening as I gathered in an auditorium with about 500 people, I came out to make my speech and I said, let us pause for a moment of silent reflection in honor of those who lost their lives at Columbine High School. And I can read the expressions of people's faces. Most of them didn't know what I was talking about. They didn't have internet on their desktop. They didn't have smartphones at the time. They went from work to the school. Strange. Terrifying. Couldn't understand it. And this week it happened again. We're in that sermon series still called Journeying Through Doubt, where I've asked y'all to give me questions of faith. Hard things that you deal with, things that make you doubt, things that make it hard to continue in your faith or that you struggle with. And I time and again get the question, if God is good, then why does evil happen? So I was set to preach a sermon on that topic and every illustration was going to have to do with wars and memories of those who've gone before us in wars because it is Memorial Day weekend. And if you served, thank you for being a person of service and Thank you to those who've gone before us. I do want to say those things to you now, but at the same time, I was endeavoring to write a sermon on the topic of evil, and another shooting happened. I stayed up the other night way too late watching, thinking about these second graders through fourth graders, thinking about moms and dads everywhere, who have lost their children, thinking of teachers, thinking of how hard it is to live in that reality and realizing myself we're in that reality every single day. I don't know why. I don't know why. But I ask why. And so like you, I have to ask the question that we ask so often, if God is good, then why does evil persist in our world? That is a question that not only atheists, but Christian theologians struggle with. In particular, if you read Dostoevsky, for instance, the bigger question is, if God's good, then not, not why is there evil, but, but why do children suffer? That seems to be one of the hardest things to wrap the moral imagination around. Now, I am a theology nerd, and the theology term for this question is called theodicy. Everyone say theodicy. 
That is the question of suffering and pain and evil in the world with God being good. Theodicy. We're asking the question of theodicy. And I want to tell you today that the biblical witness, the biblical tradition itself, does not answer the question in only one way. It offers many explanations for the question at hand. Take, for instance, that first book of the Bible, Genesis. In it, you have Genesis chapter 3, which is where Adam and Eve eat from the tree they're not supposed to eat from. They fell to their temptation to be like God. And isn't that really the sin at the heart of every sin? Our desire to be our own God? That's at the heart of every single sin that we could ever achieve. And God comes in the cool of the day. It's my favorite time of day. When I read that scripture about Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day, it reminds me of playing catch with my dad out in the summertime when it's just getting dusky. And I can smell that grill and the charcoal is burning and I hear Jack Buck and Mike Shannon call the cardinal game from the deck and we're just playing catch together. God comes to walk with his children during the cool of the day. This time they're hiding because they're naked and they know it. And God says, what'd you guys do? As if God didn't know. What'd you guys do? And so they blame each other. It's a whole mess. And then God says, basically, if you follow the outline of Genesis 3, there's some consequences. There's now chaos or a rupture between the relationship that humanity has with God. There's now distance. There's now chaos or a rupture between human relationships between each other. There's now brokenness here. It's a brokenness that will lead to wars. There's a brokenness or a rupture in the human's relationship to their own self. They don't know themselves. We don't know ourselves rightly anymore. We don't know what it means to be made in the image of God. And there's a rupture or a brokenness between the human relationship to that of the non-human world of creation, otherwise known as nature. There you go. That accounts for so much that we call evil or pain and suffering in the world. Things aren't right. Some theological traditions call this the great fall or just the fall. Not every Christian tradition follows the notion of the fall, but a lot do. The idea is there's a, a set of consequences that naturally fall, follow from uh, bad choices in the world. Have you ever heard about that parenting strategy called love and logic? My wife is a much better practitioner of it than I am, but we've sat through classes on love and logic, and the, one of the ideas behind it is that you would not actively punish your child when they do something wrong. It's that you let the natural consequences come over them, especially when they're younger and they're smaller. The stakes aren't that high, and therefore, hopefully, they will learn. One of my friends at my former congregation is a teacher of love and logic, he was telling me a story about how he walked into the living room and he saw his son Hunter there with all these toys. And he said his weapons were everywhere because little boys, for some reason, like toys that look like weapons. wonder why. Think on that. Swords and knives and ninja stars and guns and whatnot all over the place. And he says, Hunter, I'm going to give you five minutes to pick up this mess. Or daddy will take responsibility for it. So he said, I left the room and I let them have their five minutes. 
At the fourth minute, I did check in, and I noticed that nothing had been done. And I said to him, Hunter, you have one minute left. Do you want me to take responsibility, or are you going to take responsibility? And son kept going about his business. So then he comes in at the five-minute mark. He said, Hunter, I noticed you didn't put away any of your toys. Would you like Daddy to take responsibility now? And his son looked at him kind of like, are you stupid? Yeah, I'd love for you to take responsibility for it. I said, what'd you do next? So Gary, this is his name, starts collecting up all the toys and he starts taking them to the garbage can to throw them away. I said, what do you mean? You're throwing, you're throwing money away. And Gary says, well, firstly, if I'm taking responsibility for the toys, I don't need them. So I'll just get rid of them. But then he says, Jared, a sword that cost me $1.60 at the store is much cheaper than a $1,600 car when you turn 16, is much cheaper than a $160,000 house, and so on. If he learns the lesson now that it's his responsibility, it's much cheaper in the long run. Some logic to that. Genesis 3 has this notion about evil that is based in a consequence model, letting the natural consequences of sin affect human life and the life of our world, and therefore that can account for our pain, that can account for our suffering. However, the Bible doesn't just have one answer for why is there evil or pain and suffering. It has many. Job, we read Job this morning. Sarah read it to us. Job is a great morality tale. And one thing about Job you should understand is that it's a much older book than the book of Genesis. It's ancient. Scholars think it's the oldest book written in the Bible. And in that book, you have a heavenly court where there's God and there's the devil and the devil plays the prosecuting attorney. There's a guy named Job. He's very faithful. God brags on Job and the devil says, let me try my hand at him. And God lets him. Job's livelihood's taken away. Job's family's taken away. Job's health is taken away. He's sitting on death's door, suffering after suffering after suffering. And then Job has some friends. They turn up and they, they come and they do this really remarkable thing with him. They sit with him quietly. We always don't like Job's friends when we read the story because they start answer, giving him like bad theological answers that get Job in trouble with God. But before they do all that, they sit with him. It is a remarkable thing to be present to someone in pain. It's a remarkable thing to have someone be present with you in your suffering. But I guess they grew tired of it and they begin giving him bad theological advice. And so he asks God and God's answer that we read this morning is, where were you? when I hung the foundations of the universe? Where were you when I put the stars in the sky? Where were you? Job answers the question of human suffering and misery with a mystery. It's too much for us to know. One of the greatest stand-up comics working today is named John Mulaney. Not sure if you're familiar with him. I was listening to him on a podcast this past week, and uh, Mulaney, uh, they said to him, hey, um, 
we heard that you went to Georgetown University and studied English, and then the podcast guy goes, and theology? As if it were such a silly pursuit. They said, why would you study theology? Did you want to become a priest? He goes, no, actually, I, I, I focus mostly on Jewish theology. I said, that's fascinating. Why? And he goes, oh, I just love the way Jewish theology goes. And this is his understanding of it, not mine. Mulaney says a lot of Jewish theology is like, who's to say? Or you ask the question about, why is there water on the planet? The answer is more like, uh, uh, who do you think you are asking that question? It's kind of there in Job, isn't it? Who do you think you are asking the question? Where were you when I made this glorious world? It's another way of getting at it. If you get to medieval philosophy and theology, you will find different answers. The idea there in a lot of places, especially with Aquinas, is that human beings are potential. We're not actualized yet. We're always in the process of becoming. And because of that, because of our creatureliness, because of our finitude, we're imperfect. All of us, including the cosmos, is finite. And we stand in the presence of an infinite, necessary being, a fully actualized being named God. God is the standard that we always can't measure up to. And so there are accidents that happen in the world. Sometimes tsunamis hit, and sometimes people suffer because of them. We're still on the process of becoming We can skip over all that and go right to the New Testament, however, because Jesus dealt with it sometimes in his ministry. He's walking along with his disciples, and there's a blind man, and the disciples say, well, what made this guy blind? Was it his sin or his daddy's sin or his great-grandfather's sin? Was his mama's sin? That was a, a way of handling the theodicy question for many people during that time. And Jesus gives them an answer, but not one that's satisfactory to us when we would try to understand suffering. Jesus basically says, if I could translate it for you the way I would, it doesn't matter why he's blind. What are you going to do about it? Who's to say? Perhaps where were you when the world was created? But what will you do about their suffering? What will you do? There's a, a theologian working at Duke named Kate Bowler who had stage four cancer. She wrote this book that I think is valuable. I'm going to teach a sermon series on this at some point. Um, the book is called Everything, for, that Happen Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies That I've Loved. Christians really should stop saying that. In that book, she says, when you say things like that to someone who's suffering, it can really hurt. Sometimes suffering happens. And no, you didn't lose a loved one to teach you a lesson. 
Sometimes things don't happen for a reason for you. It is the case that God takes our bad stuff and makes them good, or makes good out of it. Romans 8.28 says that. So she gave some suggestions of what we should say instead of everything happens for a reason. Maybe when you're with somebody who's suffering, you say, you're beautiful. I'm on your team. I'm here. Or maybe you just don't say anything at all. And like Job's friends, you just sit. I think the problem that many of us have, especially in our culture, is we have a paradigm for understanding our faith. And I'm not sure that we're conscientious of it, but I think the paradigm itself needs to be understood as transactional. God made the world. God wants us back. We sin and walk away from God. So God sends the son Jesus. He dies so that we, and then God wants us to come back because of that. It's all about the transaction. I love God so I don't go someplace called hell or I get forgiven or whatever. It's transaction. What if I told you that's not the point of our faith at all? What if I told you instead of a transaction, the paradigm should be about transformation? Our faith is about being transformed, transfigured, made new. So maybe, maybe our suffering that we go through, maybe it, it does have the opportunity, if we let it, to produce something in us, to help be a part of a transformational process. Oh, no, I'm not telling you that God enacts suffering on you so that you'll get better, but maybe just the way the world is, you're going to suffer sometimes. And maybe if you're faithful, God will use it to produce something deep inside of your heart. We have a really hard time with this question. If God is so good, then why does he allow evil to persist? And I think it's because we have another paradigm issue in our brains. It's who we think God is. We tend to talk about God in very triumphant terms, right? Christ the King. Lordship. Power. Will and volition. Well, God is powerful. He's the creator. But if you only focus on one aspect of God, it's kind of like buying a table at the store that's got one table leg longer than the rest of the legs on your, uh, of the table. It's wobbly. You can't focus on one attribute of God more than other ones. You have to think about it all together because if you focus on one, the table's wobbly. And your cup of cold water is going to slide right off. As soon as you start talking about God's power, you should be talking about God's love, God's mercy, God's intellect. These are attributes of God as well. So maybe when we're thinking about suffering, when we're thinking about evil, we can say instead of, why doesn't God use his power to fix all the problems? What if I said God's also vulnerable? Isn't God vulnerable? Whoever God is, God is the one who's given himself over to us in Jesus. 
And Jesus is God who's become just like us and suffered like us. Identifies with you so radically that God suffers with you. Is it possible that God is the God who weeps? Does God's heart break when some person goes into a school and takes out a bunch of children? Does God's heart break? The God I believe in does. And so, if God really just eradicated evil, then God would take away something else that we love. It's called our freedom of will. And we'd be just as angry about that, too. Maybe the vulnerability is worth the risk. Maybe the freedom of your heart is worth the risk to God. Isn't this what true love is? Entering into the burden of another. You know, I risk this saying this right now. I didn't expect my two daughters to be right there, but I risk it, but I want to tell it to you. There are times I've asked my lovely wife, why do we even have children? You know, when I ask that question, when I come home with their hearts broken and their hearts are broken and I see their tears, I'm like, why do I sign up for this pain? Why did I sign up for it? Because it, it hurts more when the people you love hurt, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Thank you, D. Stone. But also I realize that it's worth the risk. And her life is so good. And such gifts of God that it's worth the risk. Before we go any further and conclude this sermon on evil, I have to give you a bit of information about the Christian tradition that is woefully lost in our, in our contemporary world. It's about the definition of evil. What is evil? Because right now I've been using that word generically and I've been talking about pain and suffering too. But I do want you to understand that the ancient church fathers did not consider evil a thing. In fact, you could say evil does not exist. As soon as I say that, I know that you're like, well, well hold on. There's the Holocaust. No, hold on, there was a school shooting. These things are evil. Hear what I'm saying carefully. Evil is nothing. Evil is no thing. So, a person like St. Augustine said, evil is privatio boni, privation of the good. And what he means, it's not a thing. It's not a black cloud that floats through the universe. It's not like the dark side of the force, a la Star Wars. It doesn't have substance. It's not lurking behind your back door, waiting to pounce on you. Evil, if it is anything, is a privation of goodness. When you read Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 carefully, God said everything that he made was what? Good. Everything's good. If evil's a thing in the universe, that means God had to create it. And since God didn't create evil, but God created everything good, all that evil can be is when you take something good and you use it wrongly. It is a moral choice to take something good and to use it wrongly. The rock is a good thing, but it can be used wrongly and it can become a part of an act of evil. See my meaning. You don't have to be worried, Christian, 
about an evil undermining the universe lurking throughout. You just have to worry about whether or not you're going to decide yourself to use the world that God had made and called good for the right reasons and to not use them for wrong reasons. There is the nuance of what evil is. Scripture's got a lot of definitions and a lot of explanations about what to do in the face of suffering or pain or, or why is there evil, but it still is a big question that we have a hard time wrapping our minds around. And when you understand it, even, even the Genesis bit that seems to be really a nice, clean, tidied up with a bow on top answer can tell you that nobody wants to hear that when they're suffering. What people want is your heart. No one wants to hear the theory of the fall when they're mourning a loss. What they want is you. Explanations fail when people are truly suffering. I'll also note, though, that Scripture does give us hope. Revelation 21, verse 4, which was read earlier. There is coming a time when there shall be no more tears. No more mourning, no, mo no more sorrow. When the old things pass away and all things will be, will be made new. If God is good, then why is there evil? Well, something we're all going to walk through, that question in our lives. But the scriptures offer us hope too. There comes a time when there shall be no more and we're wrapped up in the divine embrace. Perhaps the point of our lives is not the end goal. I've said this a number of times. Perhaps it's the journey. Because it's in the journey where our transformation happens. And the heart of our faith is transformation, not transaction. It's about being ever made new into the likeness of Jesus Christ. As we walk our way to the end of our life, and to the final end when there is truly no more pain and sorrow as we live in the divine embrace of our God. Now, Scripture never promised us pure bliss. If you read the rest of Revelation, it says there's going to be war, there's going to be rumors of war, there's going to be famine, there's going to be disease. Unfortunately, there's things like school shootings. The fact that we even have a Memorial Day, by the way, is evidence that we actually think war is wrong. It in and of itself is a mournful concept. Yet these things happen in the human life. What we get to do is have hope of where we're heading. A place of peace with God. And we get to be aware that the choices we make what we do with God's good world and all the creative things that God has made, we can either lift to the divine or we can use them as if we were God. I hope, my friends, that you will follow the first path by lifting things to God and let them live in the proper order that they were given to live in. I bless you.